0: Well, it's good to be with you this morning. It's been two years since I've been here, and it's been about eight since my dad preached at our church, so it's good to be able to switch pulpits and remind ourselves and our churches that there's like-minded people, like-minded saints that worship the same God, that sing the same songs, and have the same salvation. So it's a blessing to be with you. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we know that that implies that we live in a world that is dark. We live in a world with sin and difficulty and anxiety and fear, uncertainty. And Lord, you give us your word to guide us, to encourage us, to sustain us, and to show us who you are, and what you're doing in the midst of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you will use your word this morning to speak to us, to guide us, to encourage us, to formulate the priorities of our minds, our hearts, and our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, has anyone seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings? Amen? Alright, so if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, you remember it's the story about Frodo, who's kind of the main character. And Frodo has a job of taking a ring to the center of Middle-earth and throwing it into the fires of Mount Doom to destroy it. And initially, Frodo starts his journey with all of these friends that are warriors, that are really great guys to have around him to protect him. But eventually, he and his best friend, Sam, have to break off from the bigger part of the group, and they have to go it alone. And every step of the journey, there's danger. There's wraiths in Nazgul hunting them from the sky. There's the ever-watchful eye of Saruman, or Sauron, who scans Middle-earth every day and every night looking for the ring. But there's a greater danger to Frodo. The greatest danger to Frodo is actually a ring he carries around his neck and he puts in his pocket. The ring is always trying to turn Frodo towards the darkness. It's trying to ruin him. It's trying to wreck him, and it's a great burden that he carries. And at one point, um, Frodo and Sam are going up the the path of Sirith Ungol, and Sam realizes the burden that the ring is to Frodo. And he offers to help. He says, I can carry it for a while. Share the load. And Frodo explodes. Frodo pushes him backwards and questions whether he loves him, questions whether Sam cares about him, and he actually sends him back home to the Shire. That scene actually plays out in each and every one of our lives every day. Because, like Frodo, we have burdens. We have things that weigh us down, things that stress us out, things that keep us awake at night, things that tear our hearts apart. And our God in the Word tells us that He cares about us, that He offers to carry our burdens and to help us. And like Frodo, we often question whether that's true. And that's really the point of 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read together verses 6 and 7. <clears> 1 <throat> Peter 5, and we're going to read 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, <clears throat> casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. There's three things we're going to look at in those two verses. First, we're going to see our cares in perspective. We see that in verse 6, our cares in perspective. And then we're going to see our cares in our hands. We'll see that in the first part of verse 7. And then finally, we'll see our cares in God's heart. We see that in the second half of verse 7. Let's start by looking at our cares in perspective. Notice what Peter tells us in verse 6. Verse 6 says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 6 is that Peter tells us we are under God's hand. That's the world in which we live in. And so we have to ask, what does it mean to be under the hand of God? To be under the hand of God means that we live in a world where the circumstances and situations from the most mundane to the most significant, everything about the world we live in is under the control and the sovereign influence of God. The hand of God is actually an anthropomorphism that Peter's using to teach us that God's hand, God's touch, God's presence is felt and experienced and exerting control over the entire created order. We know that's what the expression the hand of God means because we see it used that way a number of times elsewhere in Scripture. You don't have to turn there with me. One of the first places we see it, though, is in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra 8 verse 31 and 32 says, We departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hands of our enemy and from the ambush along the road. And so we came to Jerusalem and stayed there for three days. So in Ezra, it says that the hand of our God was upon us on this journey, but it's helpful because it contrasts the hand of God with the hand of Israel's enemies. And the hands of Israel's enemies is there to do what? It's there to lay a trap on the road and to cause destruction and to destroy them. But Ezra writes, the hand of our God was upon us. God was sovereignly orchestrating even our journey from the river to Jerusalem. God is sovereignly orchestrating every event of that journey so that we as His people get to where He wants us to go. Another place we have the same expression is in Psalm 110 verse 8. It says, a Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's the hand of God in Psalm 110 verse 1? It's, it's the place where, from which God exerts all control over all of human history, all of redemptive history. It's the place from which God exerts His sovereign control, bringing everything to the goal of making His enemies His footstool. That's, that's big stuff. That's significant. But Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in one's work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. What's work? What's food? That's the most mundane things about our life. We go to work six days. We eat two or three meals a day. That's the most mundane, everyday stuff. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, this comes from the hand of our God. This is part of God's sovereign control, His exertion of Himself into His creation. Job 2, verse 10, But He said to her, Job speaking to his wife, You speak like a foolish woman. Probably not great marriage advice. You speak like a foolish woman. What? Shall we receive good from the hand of God, and shall we not also receive evil? Job's wife is rebuking him and telling him just like, curse God and die, and Job responds and says, here's how I think about my God. I receive good from Him, from His hand, but I also receive evil from His hand. Not evil in the sense that God is sinful, but evil in the sense that there's things happening in Job's life that are undesirable to say the least, and Job's Job looks at everything in his life, and he says, it all comes from the hand, from the sovereign control of my God. And so, repeatedly in Scripture, we see this phrase, the hand of God is a way of communicating that we live in a world where our God reigns. And He doesn't reign like someone who starts the world and pulls back to watch what happens. He reigns and He rules in such a way where where He does start everything, but He never pulls back. He is always orchestrating and dictating and controlling all of the events of all of human history, from the sinful ones in a way that He maintains His own purity, even to the most blessed, pure, awesome things that happen. He reigns and rules, and He controls all of it, although the expression, the hand of God isn't used the same way or used in this passage, that same truth is communicated in Ephesians 1, verse 11, where it says, in him we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose, and then notice what it says, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is God working according to the counsel of his will? Ephesians tells us he works all All things according to the counsel of His will. Which means if you ate breakfast this morning, you were living under the hand of God, and part of His decreative will is that you would eat breakfast this morning. God is in control of absolutely everything. So what is God doing? He's working. He's exerting His sovereign control. He's orchestrating all of the events of all human activity according to the counsel of His own will. Now, now we have to stop for a minute, and we have to come back to 1 Peter and think about how would the original recipients of Peter, thought about what what Peter just told them. Because it's one thing to say, you live in a world where God is in control. You are under the hand of God. It's one thing to say that to people who are laying in a hammock on a beach drinking mojitos in the morning. That's not Peter's audience. Uh, Listen to some of the things that Peter has already told these people. In chapter 2, verse 19, we learn that some of them are suffering... Even physical beatings for their faith, for following after the Lord. In chapter 3.14, we learn that their suffering is on account of not evil, but according to righteousness. Because they're doing what is glorifying to God. In chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, we learn they are suffering on account of their association with Christ, and the people who are persecuting them and attacking them are actually doing so, wishing that they could get to Christ. They're attacking God's people the same way they wish they could attack Christ. They're not living comfortable, fun lives. Some of them are slaves being beaten. Some of them have really jacked up wives who they wish they could say, be quiet, you fool. Some of them have hard circumstances, maybe businesses that have failed, maybe relationships that are just exploding. Um, In fact, the the persecution that they're going through in just a few short years after Peter writes this, the persecution they're going through is going to escalate to a whole nother level. And so one ancient historian um, who was alive during this time wrote this about the persecution that would come in just a few short years. He wrote, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. Some were nailed to crosses or were doomed to be the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. That's the people that Peter's writing to. He's writing to people that in a few short years, although more than likely none of them have given their lives yet for the gospel. Some of them soon will. They're living very difficult lives. And Peter writes to these suffering people, and what does he say? He says, the way you view this, you have to stop for a minute and just take a theological step back and think about this from God's perspective. Because you look at it and you go, I'm suffering because my boss is just a jerk. You you say, I'm suffering because my wife is an immoral woman. You say, I'm suffering because the stock market crashed, and my 401k is worthless in my first year of retirement. You say, I'm suffering because I raised my children to follow the Lord, and then all of a sudden, they, like 100 miles an hour, turn 18 and go off the deep end, and it keeps me awake at night. And, and we say, from our perspective, that the same thing they would have said, is we are suffering because of all of those things. And Peter knows that's true, but he also says, hold on a second. Get some theological perspective, because although all of that is true, don't forget you live in a world where right now you are under the hand of God. Peter's already told these believers the same truth back in chapter 3, verse 17, when he said, "'For it is better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil.'" How are they suffering? They're suffering for doing good, but why are they suffering? Because it's according to the plan of God. Because God is reigning, and in this period of time, God is not passively allowing these things to happen. He is actually sovereignly exerting His hand over their lives and doing something they can't see. You heard it last week, I think, in the sermon last week here, that God is actually doing all things for the good of His people. We don't see it as good. We see it as a mess. We see it as suffering. We see it as stress. We see it as difficulty. And Peter says, no, actually, God is exerting his hand over your lives, and it's for your good. Corey Ten Boom wrote a poem about this. She said, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the color he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride... Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas to reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. That should be your perspective in your suffering. Your perspective should not be that that the world is spun out of control because it does look like that, doesn't it? That shouldn't be our perspective as God's people who have open Bibles. Our perspective should be that God is working in the midst of chaos. He's working in the midst of suffering. He's working in the midst of the, the, the most difficult, dark thing you will ever go through. And he has orchestrated it, he has planned it, and he is using it for your good. And in light of that truth, Peter tells us, we should humble ourselves. We should humble ourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We should humble ourselves under God's hand. We shouldn't arrogantly question what He's doing. We shouldn't arrogantly come to Him and say, you know, if I was God, this is not the way things would be. We should humbly look at the world around us and recognize we should put our hands over our mouth and say, you are God and I am not. One of the implications we should draw from verse 6 is that it actually matters to us And it matters to God how we think in our suffering. We see this throughout the Psalms, is that David, as he's suffering and he's going through really dark, difficult times, what's he doing? He's, he's teaching himself theology. He's reminding himself, who is my God? What has my God done? And one of the implications from verse 6 is that it matters how we think about God in the midst of our suffering. And if you think about God as He is detached, He is distant, He is ignorant, He is out of control, He doesn't care. If that's how you think about God in the midst of your suffering, it will hurt all the more. And so, when your life is hard, does anyone have a hard life? When you're experiencing trials and suffering, this should be your perspective that even here, I am under God's hand. Even here, God is sovereign. Even here, God is in control. It's not enough to believe simply that God is sovereign over our salvation. He is that. But He is sovereign over everything. He's... We have to go further than that, though, don't we? He's not just sovereign over everything out there. He's sovereign over the fact that some of you get sick this week. He's sovereign over the phone call someone might receive tomorrow saying a close friend or a close family member has passed away. He's sovereign over which one of your kids will worship him and which ones will not. He's sovereign over the stock market and the value of your 401k. Everything in this world is under the hand of God. So last March, I did a funeral for a young lady who came to our church for a couple years. She was 29 years old, and she overdosed on some pills and was in a medically induced coma for a while. She came out of it, and after she came out of it, she was still on life support. And She made the decision that they would unplug the life support, and she passed away at 29. And so the the funeral was in the middle of the week. Her family had a viewing for her Um, on, on Sunday of that week. And they asked if I would come and pray and be with the family. So I go to this viewing and it took three hours. I'm sitting in the middle on the far right side aisle and my wife's texting me like, where are you? You're just at a viewing. And I'm like, this isn't a viewing like anyone I've ever been to. And they have an open casket up front and here's Sierra in the casket and her family comes up and for three hours, they come up and they play with her hair. And they weep, and they mourn, and they scream, and they wail, and then they go back and sit down. And then someone else comes up. And this went on for three hours. And I have to admit that in the, about the one hour mark, I'm sitting there thinking, where in the world is God? This seems so broken, that, that even though I know theology, even though I know my Bible, I'm sitting here in the midst watching these people suffer in ways that God has never allowed me to suffer, and I'm thinking, where are you, God? Here's what First Peter tells me. Even His hand is there. Even that is not outside of or detached from His control. And so don't in your arrogance resist him, don't argue with him in your pride, don't in your pride think you can counsel him or give him advice. But Peter tells us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so our perspective in in suffering should be a humble perspective, a humble perspective that receives and endures everything that God's wisdom says that we should receive and endure. Of course, most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, I agree with that theology. But the practical outworking of that truth when we are weighed down by thousands of things is another story, isn't it? Because I want to fix my situation. So, I'm a dude, and my wife is not, which means that when my wife has problems, she wants to vent. And I don't like venting, I like fixing. And she's like, this is so bad, and this is going on. And she said this to me at church, and she ignored me, and, and like, no. and And I'm like, I'll make this phone call. I'll do this. I'll move this. I'll fix this. And she's like, just stop. I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to shut up and listen. I'm not good at that. And so, and what, what we do in our arrogance is we look at the world around us, and we think, I need to fix this. This is broken, this is suffering, this is out of control, and Peter tells us you don't have to fix it. You have to humble yourself, you have to endure underneath it, humbly recognizing that even here, you're under God's hand. And that's hard, isn't it? And Peter knows it's hard, Peter knows we need help. So he comes in verse 7 and he continues to teach us, what, what do we do with our worries? What do we do with our fears? What do we do with the things that stress us out? And notice what he tells us in verse 7. He says, casting all your cares upon him. <clears throat> so the, the, the phrase, casting all your cares, is an adjectival participle, which, which means that the casting your cares on the Lord is not a new thought being introduced in verse 7. So some of your translations, I think the ESV and the NAS, both have a period at the end of verse 6 and a new sentence that starts in verse 7. And if if you don't read it carefully, it reads as if Peter's introducing a new thought. There's actually not a new thought starting in verse 7. Instead, this is verse 7 is Peter's description of of what it looks like to humble ourselves under the hand of God. So he says, big picture, humble yourselves under the hand of God. And then the question that raises for us is, okay, so what does it look like if I humble myself under the hand of God? What does humility under the hand of God look like? And and verse 7 is the answer to that question. Here's what it looks like. It looks like casting your cares on Him. And So the flow of thought between verse 6 and 7 is that Peter commands us to humility, recognizing that God is orchestrating all of the events of our life, and then verse 7 is here's what that humility looks like. It looks like throwing your cares on the Lord, and noticing that connection is important, and it's important because it shows us there's a direct correlation between pride and humility and what we do with our cares, what we do with the things that freak us out, stress us out, worry us, what we do with those things, because here's the reality. Proud people carry their own burdens. Proud people don't acknowledge their need. Proud people think that their problem is not their problem. Proud people think that my problem is I just need to get stronger so that I can endure my problem. Proud people carry their own burdens. So our youngest daughter, her name's Becca, and we call her tiny because she's like, her biceps are like this big. And I think in a good windstorm, she'd blow away. But She's super tiny, and a couple years ago, um, I needed a sermon illustration, so I told her to take the trash out and put it in the dumpster. And I knew the dumpster was too high. I knew the trash bag was too heavy. I knew she couldn't get it in, but I told her to do it anyway. And I watched from the back window of our house, and she takes this bag of trash, and she goes to the dumpster, and she can lift it like this high, and the top of the dumpster is this high, and she drops it. And she picks it up again, and she tries to get her shoulder under it, and she drops it. And she can't do it, and she fights, and she struggles, and then she starts crying. And then eventually she comes in, tears going down her face, and I feel like a jerk because I'm just like exploiting my children for the sake of sermon illustrations. And finally she comes in, and she goes, will you help me? What had just happened? I knew what would happen. That's why I did it because I needed a sermon illustration. What happened was, she goes out there proud and confident, thinking she can do this, and she realizes, I am not made to carry this. I'm not strong enough to carry this. And it actually humbled her to the point where she came in and acknowledged she needed help. But what is this imagery of casting our cares on the Lord? To answer that, I think we first have to define what these cares are your translation might have the word anxieties. Maybe you have the word worries, casting your anxieties, casting your worries on him. Both of those are, are great. They're, whatever words you have there, it's trying to communicate the same thing. Peter's, Peter's talking about those things, it literally reads, that rip apart. That's what the word literally means. It's casting those things that rip you apart, those things that tear your heart open. That's the idea. The things that cause us stress, that cause us worry, that cause us fear, anxiety. Those things that keep you awake at 2 in the morning. And speaking of those things, Peter says, cast them on your God. Cast them on the Lord. And the word for cast is also cool because it's the same word that's used in Luke 19.35. The scene in Luke 19 is you have the triumphal entry. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And listen to what it says. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw, there's the same word, they threw their clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. Notice the word threw or cast in Luke 19. They threw their coats on the donkey. And the the imagery is they actually took the entire weight of their coat off of their own shoulders and they cast it. They threw it off of themselves onto the donkey. They transferred the entire weight of their jackets onto the donkey. And that's the same idea when we come to 1 Peter 5-7. To cast our cares on the Lord means that we take those things that weigh us down. We take those things that rip our hearts open, and we transfer the weight, we transfer the responsibility, we transfer the need onto our Lord. I think it's interesting Peter doesn't tell us our anxieties and our fears aren't real. There's, There's some branches of theology that would say, okay, we, we recognize in verse 6 we're under the hand of God. God is sovereign, and there's some people that take the sovereignty of God to mean that our responsibility in suffering is merely to shut up and act like it's not real. God's sovereign. I know people like this, and so they, they think that the sovereignty of God must of necessity lead to an emotionless stoicism that simply walks around parroting the sovereignty of God. That's not Peter's perspective. Peter doesn't say, God is sovereign, hard stop, be quiet. He acknowledges that in the midst of God's sovereignty, we struggle. We have cares, we have fears, we have tears that run down our face. But Peter's also telling us what we should do with those cares, what we should do with our anxieties, what we should do with things that cause us to be fearful. And what he's telling us in verse 7 is we should take them and we should transfer the weight of them, we should transfer the burden of them onto our Lord. Psalm 50 Psalm 55 verse 2 says the same thing. It says cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous one to be moved. So, here's what all of this means. It means that whoever has the broadest shoulders in this room, God did not make your shoulders broad enough to carry your own burdens. God will, we come up with stupid sayings, one of the stupid sayings we come up with is that God will never give you more than you can handle. I can't find that in my Bible. What I find in my Bible is that God is always giving me more than I can handle, because I'm not made to handle it. I'm made to take the handling of it off of myself and to transfer it to my God and to trust Him with it. But the question is, how do we do that? Practically, what does that look like tomorrow? What does that look like today? Maybe, you, maybe on your way to church this morning, you were like, I wonder if I can tithe this weekend. So you stopped at the ATM and you put your debit card in and you enter your PIN. I'm not going to tell you my PIN, but you enter your PIN. And It says you have four dollars and 23 cents, and you still have a week and a half till payday, And you're stressed out because that doesn't even buy a tank of ga- or a gallon of gas anymore. And you're freaked out and you're worried and you're like, "How in the world am I going to, to get through till payday?" Maybe you do have that prodigal child that's off doing stupid. And it's keeping you awake at two in the morning because you just know the life that they are living. You know the road they're on. You know the dead end that it is. And it keeps you awake at night. And so, so, so Peter tells us, cast it on the Lord. And we go, how? How do I do that? I think there's a bunch of ways we can do that. I want to give us two. One of the ways we can do that is through prayer. I turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, and we'll read verse 6 and 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything. That's helpful, right? (laughs) Don't be Stop being anxious. Why does it say that? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says the same thing that 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 say, that that we can take our burdens and we can cast it on the Lord, but it it adds some meat to those bones, and it says here's how you do that. You do it through prayer, through prayer and supplication. Let your requests, let everything you need be made known to God. And what's the result that he promises in verse 7? The unfathomable peace of God will reign in your hearts. And so one of the ways we cast our burden on the Lord is by taking everything that stresses us out, everything that keeps us awake at night, everything that plays through our mind 20 hours a day that we're just anxious might happen. We take all of that and we go to our, the, the corner of our bed. Just You can do this tonight. You can go home this evening and you can bury your face in your hand and you can confess to God, this is how this plays out in my mind. This is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm fearful about. This is what I see coming. This is what has already come. This is the life that I live. This is the lot you have given me. And I can come to God and I can encourage myself by reminding myself in prayer, I know God is sovereign and His sovereignty is not detached from His love. His sovereignty is not detached from His fatherly care. He's giving me these things, but He's also giving me prayer to come to Him and to throw this burden off of myself and to remind myself through prayer, this is God's problem. Whatever it is, we can take our burden to the Lord, and we can remind ourselves by telling God that He is sovereign, He is in control, and these are not our burdens. They are His. Elisha Hoffman was a pastor in Pennsylvania in the mid-1800s, and there was a single mom who went to his church, And she was one of those people, and there's people like this, where where it's just, life was always beating her up. Death, sickness, loss, financial problems, house fires. Like, she was one of those people that life would push her down, and then it would kick her. And then he'd rub some dirt on it and then he'd pour water on it to make it mud. And then it would pick her up so it could do it over and over and over again. And one day, she called Elisha Hoffman to her house and, and she's just having a breakdown. And she said, Brother Hoffman, what shall I do? He had no clue what to tell her. Uh, the suffering and the difficulty that God had given this woman to live with, he had no clue, like there's no platitudes you can give that lady. And so he sits there quietly for a minute. And in his mind, while he's sitting there, he wrote a song, and it's a song you've probably sung. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot carry these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot carry my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me and Jesus alone. Another way you can cast your, burdens on the Lord is by taking a three-by-five card, and this is something I've done in my own life for years. You can take a three-by-five card, and you can write on the one side of it. You can write all of the things that stress you out, all of the things you're fearful of, all of the things that tear your heart apart, and then you can flip that three-by-five card over, and you can say, okay, what promises does God give me that actually address this problem? I'm fearful about this. Does the Bible speak to that? And then as you write the passage of Scripture where God makes a promise that actually addresses that fear, you can leave that three-by-five card on the table promise side up. And so if your concern that you're carrying around is the concern of your future, will you be able to work long enough, hard enough, and make enough so that when you can no longer work hard and long You have a big enough nest egg built up that you'll be able to sustain yourself without having to be homeless at 80. You can write that out in the way it plays out in your mind at 2 in the morning, and then you can flip that card over and you can write something like like Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can write Philippians 4 and 9, my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. You can write Matthew six twenty five and 26. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than They? And Once you've reminded yourself of the promises of God that address your anxiety, that address your fear, you can leave that card promise side up to remind you, this is how God deals with my problems. So there's, on the, uh, on the wall above my desk, there's two three by 5 cards that are taped to the wall, and they've been there for years, because I have the same fears and the same anxieties and the same problems that I've had for years. We've moved four times since I wrote them. They've gotten crumpled and smashed and I've had to rewrite them. But the last time I rewrote them, I left my problems off and I just had the promises. That's what you can do when you have stress. That's what you can do when you have anxiety and fear and things that keep you up at night is you can go back to the promises of God and you can remind yourself, this is how my God addresses this. And maybe you're thinking, great, cool, that's all good and well, but but don't forget where you started. You started in verse 6 by saying, we live in a world where God sovereignly exerts His control and His sovereignty over every detail, which means that my suffering and my fear and my, my anxiety and my worry and my health and my portfolio and my children's salvation and all of it is under God's control. And now you're telling me I'm supposed to come back to that God who's in control of these problems and I'm supposed to throw it back on Him? That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Is he really the place I want to be going when he is the one who's sovereign over all of my existence? And to answer that objection, Peter tells us at the end of verse 7, our heart in God's hand. Or, I'm sorry, our cares in God's heart. Our cares in God's heart. Notice the last phrase of verse 7. It says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. The last phrase of verse 7 is answering the question, why should I take my cares and cast them on the God who is sovereignly orchestrating all of my difficulties? And Peter's answer to that question is because he cares for you. There's obviously a play on words going on in verse 7. In the first half of verse 7, he acknowledges you have cares, you have concerns, you have worries, you have stresses, you have fears, you have anxieties. You have all of these things going on. And then in the second half of verse 7, he, cha- he uses a word that has a different meaning, but is still the word cares, because God's cares are not like ours. God doesn't get stressed out, freaked out. He doesn't lose sleep at night as if he slept. That's not God, but what he is doing is he's saying, you have those things, but don't forget that you are the object of God's care. God loves you. God cares for you. He is for your good. The second word that gets translated cares, he cares for you, means to be interested in, to show watchful care and affection over something. It means to be concerned for someone's well-being. And so Peter's telling us that, that the way we should think about our cares is that God is not emotionally detached. God is in the midst of our suffering showing emotional care and the power of all that He has for our well-being in the midst of it. He's interested in us, and we are the objects of His love and concern. Sometimes God shows his care simply by removing our suffering, doesn't he? Sometimes he allows us to suffer. He allows us to have fear and anxiety, and then he uses that to discipline us, and then he goes, it's done. And we pray to him, and the next day he alleviates it. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes we experience his care by simply receiving the grace that we need to endure in the midst of it. But whether God removes the circumstances or gives us the grace of strength that we need to face it, at the end of the day, whatever He does, He cares for us. We read it in Psalm 86, verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I will call on you. Why? For you will answer me. What will God do for His people when they call on Him? He will answer them. He may not answer us the way we expect. He may not answer us the way we hope, but He will answer, and He will answer in a way that is a demonstration of His care for us. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two teaches us the same thing. It says, cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Now, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I don't practically believe that. That's true up here, but it doesn't feel true here. That's true here, but it doesn't feel true here. So, how in the world do we get this? So, last week, a young man that I grew up going to church with, um, a young man some of you may have even known, a young man I played with as a kid growing up, turned off the, Cody calls it the Powell Highway, Powell calls it the Cody Highway. He turned off of that highway, and he slid on some ice. He didn't get the traction he thought he was going to. He ended up sliding on some ice and getting broadsided by a semi. And he passed away on the way to the hospital. And I find out about it like a day or two later. And as I'm reading about it in the newspaper, I'm trying to put myself in his brother's shoes empathetically as I read through the story. And as I'm reading through this story, I'm thinking, what goes through your head at three in the afternoon when you're at work and your mom calls you and you're like, hmm, she never bugs me at work, I wonder what's up. And you answer the phone and she's just hysterical. She can't even get it out. Your brother's gone. What goes through your head at that moment? A thousand things go through your head at that moment. He had two, two children. He was like in the peak of his life. One of the questions that would go through my head is, I don't think God actually cares about me. God, why would you let this happen? God, why didn't you let him live to be 96 years old and to just pass away in his sleep? why this, Lord? Don't you care? I don't feel like you have any personal relationship or care or concern for me. I don't think you give a lick about me. And God knows that we feel that way when life is hard. He knows that at times we we question His care. We question His, His love for us. And so one of the things Scripture does is it doesn't just make the assertion that God cares for us. It actually gives us Ways we see God's care for us to build our confidence in that moment that He cares for us. One of the ways Scripture builds our confidence that God actually cares for us is by using nature to illustrate God's care for us. Luke twelve, twenty two through thirty one actually argues from the lesser to the greater that if God cares for the most mundane parts of nature, he also cares for his children. Listen to how it does that in Luke twelve, twenty two through thirty one. Then he said to his disciples, "'Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns. And God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest?' Think about the lilies of the field. They don't grow. Neither do they toil or spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek for... What you should eat or what you should drink or be anxious in your mind? For all of these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What's it, what's it doing in Luke? What it's doing is it's arguing from the lesser to the greater. It's arguing that if God cares about something as mundane and minuscule as a bird... Or a flower in a grassy field? If God shows His love and provision and care there, how much more does He love and care for and provide for you as His child? I hope you argue with yourself that way. Another way God tries to build our confidence is not only by arguing from the lesser to the greater, but also by arguing from the greater to the lesser. This is what He does in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How then will He not also freely with Him give us all things? Notice Paul's logic in Romans 8. His logic in Romans 8 is the exact opposite of the logic in Luke 22. The logic of Romans 8 is, if God would give you His Son... Why do you worry about everything else? Uh, The the, the greatest expression of God's love and care and concern for people is that, that He sent His own Son, His eternal Son, His dearly beloved Son, the Son in whom He delighted. He sent that Son into the world as an expression of His love and care and concern for you to take your sin on His shoulders, your greatest problem, And to go to a cross and to die enduring the wrath of God that was against you. And you question His love? You think when life is hard, He no longer cares for you? That's the logic of Romans 8. You don't have to question the love and care and concern of a God who would give His own Son's life for you. And so when you're tempted to doubt that God cares for you, remember the cross. Remember that at the cross, God demonstrated the greatest act of love and care and concern for you that has ever been expressed to anyone in all of history. He gave the life of His Son as His love. As we close, I want to give us two ways we can apply 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. The first way is by acknowledging life is hard. And life's hard for a lot of reasons, isn't it? One of the reasons that life is hard is because it doesn't go our way. That's why parenting's hard. Parenting's hard because it doesn't go our children's way we we Life is hard because we don't always get our way. We plan to have a certain job and we never get it. We plan to invest a certain amount of money and to be able to retire at a certain age, and it never happens. We dream about our children growing up to be more godly than we are, and our grandchildren growing up to be even more godly than they, until Spurgeon is born. And it never happens. We dream about a day when we can sit down with our children and have Christmas dinner and nobody fights, and half of them hate each other so much they don't even show up. We dream about making it big in sports, and we ride the bench our senior year because we tore our ACL. We worry about growing old and our body falling apart and getting sick and getting cancer and getting diseases and not even be able to being able to walk and having to have our kids change our diapers. And, and we worry about all this stuff, and we know that part of the difficulty of all of it is that we aren't in control We live with concerns over and over and over again. We live with the concern that the skeletons in my closet may come out someday, and you might actually find out what I'm really like. Let's face it, statistically, every one of us has our darkest days yet to come. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? Statistically, that's reality, The statistical reality is that each and every one of us will have unbearable tragedies coming in our near future. And if we could get in the secret places of every one of our minds this morning, we would know that that's bad enough, but but what compounds that is the question of, in the midst of it all, is there anyone that cares about me? I have a friend, and he's still my friend in spite of this, but I have a friend who a couple years ago, um, I was having one of those periods of time. It wasn't a day. It was a period of time. And it was just like, life's crashing down. My marriage is not doing well. Our church is not doing well. I'm not doing well. Everything in my life stinks. And I'm a wreck. So, I call this friend, and I just like bloviate on him. like I just unload. And I see him like two or three days later, and he doesn't even ask. He didn't care. I'm down here I give it to him, and he doesn't care. Isn't that what makes suffering hard? Is that at the end of the day, we're like, yeah, I know my darkest days are coming, and I'm really questioning, is there anyone who cares? First Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 say, that's a problem God's people will never have. We will never have to wonder if there's anyone who cares. Because we have a God who promises to be there with us to take our burdens that we will give Him off of our shoulders and to carry us through. And so in the midst of your suffering, you have to hold two things in tension, and you have to hold them in the same hand. You have to uphold that God is in control. You won't make it if you don't have that. You have to uphold that this is under God's hand. But in the same hand, you also have to uphold that in God's sovereignty, He still cares. He still loves me. He still sees me. I'm still His child. And even when I don't like what He is doing, He still cares. There's an old poem written by a lady named Elizabeth Cheney. Not Liz Cheney, Elizabeth Cheney. I don't think Liz Cheney would have written something like this. She said, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know. Why do these anxious humans rush about and worry so? Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be. They have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Isn't that sad? That's a problem, though, that God's people will never have. We will never be able to say, if we are honest, that we don't have a God who cares. Another point of application is that for some of you, your greatest care, your greatest worry, your greatest concern, your greatest stress, the thing that keeps you up at night isn't the balance of your bank account. It isn't your broken relationships. It isn't the torn ACL. It's not whether your children know the Lord. For some of you, your greatest fear and concern is that you have sin. That you know intuitively in your conscience you have sinned against your Creator, you have broken all of His laws, and if that's the end of your story, you will die a miserable death and you will go into His judgment for all eternity. And that's what freaks you out. That's what keeps you awake at night. That's what keeps your mind spinning a thousand miles an hour. And it's also made even more difficult to to process because in the midst of your sin and reckoning with your own guilt, you have the same question God's people have. Does anybody care? Is there anything that can be done about this problem? And what did we read in Romans 8? That He did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. God not only cares for us when our bank is depleted, God not only cares for us when we're laying in a hospital bed dying of cancer, God also cares for us in the moment of our sin and in the moment when our sin convicts our conscience and we say, I can't do this. I can't carry the burden of my own sin any longer. And what does God tell us in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7? He says, cast your cares on the Lord. Which means that even today, if your, your, your greatest worry is your sin and your guilt before God, you can cast it on the Lord. You can come to Him by faith and repentance, acknowledging, I cannot endure the guilt of my own sin. I cannot endure your wrath against my sin. I can't keep living this way. But I know that you sent your own Son into the world to die for broken sinners, and that's me. And by faith, I'm claiming that he has died for me, and I am receiving by faith in repentance everything that he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. So in the midst of your sin, don't live wondering if someone cares, but do the thing that 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 tell you to do. Cast your cares on the Lord. Cast your sin on the Lord. Cast your hope on the Lord, and trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we consider your word today, Lord, above all else, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for those times when we question whether you care. Forgive us for those times when we are arrogant and think we could counsel you and we we think we could run the world better. Father, we pray that you would use your word today to build our faith, our confidence, our hope in Christ, Lord, we know that that in this life, you don't take away suffering. You take away suffering in the age to come. And so, Lord, while we are waiting for the consummation of your kingdom, we pray that you will give your people faith. We pray that you will use your word to sustain that faith. And that when trials come, we will cast them on you. And we pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.